the digital transition. Digital Transition, a podcast series created to assist those tasked with implementing digital strategies, where we will share our knowledge and experiences to support you in your transition. Welcome to the Digital Transition, podcast number 19. I'm your host, Nathan Hildebrandt, and today I'm talking to James Cheesewright from Honeywell about how BIM can be used for preventative maintenance during the operational phase of an asset. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me today, James. No worries. Firstly, I, I really want to thank Tim Mumford for connecting us. Um, he reached out to me and suggested that we talk. And, you know, the conversations that we've had prior to us sitting down to obviously undertake this interview, I, you're a wealth of knowledge and I'm actually concerned that we're actually not going to be able to uh, capture all of your knowledge in this short conversation that we're going to have today. And it might mean that we might have to have a few more in, in next year and next year's series. But... <laughs> Well, well, it's amazing all the knowledge that you have, and 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 I think that there's so much benefit in sharing it, and and I think that asset owners might actually take on you know a bit more of of these kind of systems that you are an expert in um, after learning about them and and understanding the benefits. So, just briefly for the listeners uh, that that aren't aware of who you are, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? So, um, basically, I'm an engineer. Through qualification, um, about 20 years ago, I took off to the UK for a little holiday and stayed there for 10 years. Um, ended up being a project manager for the National Gallery of London. Learned the graft of how to also manage a building. Did a stint in the banking sector in London at Broadgate Estates. Then ended up going into construction as a services design manager and services engineer, project manager for Taylor Woodrow at Gatwick Airport for South Terminal Extension, met a company called Lango Rocks, who some of you may or may not know, but um, they were big into digital engineering way back then in the 2000s, early 2000s, and I transitioned into Lango Rock and moved up to a project called Liverpool One in Liverpool, north of England, 42-acre redevelopment, about £2 billion worth of development, quite a massive project, and that's where I really got to know Honeywell, and Honeywell found out that I was looking to move back to Australia and long story short, I ended up with Honeywell back in Australia, uh, fell in on my feet doing project management, design management again for a division within Honeywell known as TAM, Total Asset Management, on a large triple P build, which is a public-private partnership um, known as the Victorian Comprehensive Cancer Centre, um, VCCC or Peter Mac. And there I, um, you know, basically set down the line for what we needed from the builder to operate the facility for 25 years. And then since then, I've transitioned into being the Southern District or Victoria, uh, Tasmania's district technical leader. And we um, predominantly support the Triple P portfolio, my team. I have a team of 10 and um, we have digital engineers, we have software people, we have analytics people in my team, it's a bit, a bit of a broad asset managers, mechanical engineers, electrical engineers. One of the things I do is, you know, help support the operations team in particular across Triple P, um, those public-private partnerships, and my team, you know, spend a lot of time trying to do that support in a, in a way that 
also increases their efficiency in operations. Uh, but me, yeah, I'm also into, I should say, I'm into sports cars in a big way. Cars, I have my own, I have a few. Tim knows that I have a few cars and um, they're not very environmental. So all the environmental <laughs> stuff I do in building makes up for my part time. Oh, that's your uh, carbon offsets, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, a really bizarre background as I started off in agriculture. So, you know, I've certainly come really wide full circle into the built environment. So, yeah, I don't often agriculture and viticulture. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, well, there's a yeah. few people down there now that I know that in the industry that love racing cars. And uh, there's a Dom oh, as well. So, put them on way. Yeah. They'll have to, have to make a few connections. But, uh, now, Honeywell is a massive organisation and once again, we yeah. could probably talk for hours about the capabilities of what Honeywell actually does. But I guess the key conversation, I guess, would be around, I guess, what Honeywell does in and around your sector, I guess, within the built environment. I, yeah, I guess that, it'd be something which would be good That's probably a good to, idea, yeah. <laughs> to, uh, like you said, um, Honeywell's vast. So we, yes. you know, we're across aerospace, petrochemical, safety products, you know, manufacturing goods, all sorts of all sorts of streams. Um, the sector that I'm I'm within is uh, Honeywell Building Technology, yeah, and then more specifically Honeywell Building Solutions, and then even tighter is the Total Asset Management Division, which is specifically formed to align with um, Triple P projects. Um, that's those public private partnerships. Um, but yeah, Honeywell HBS. Um, we develop products uh, for building control, so controlling air conditioning, security cameras, fence lines, all sorts of stuff that go into the built environment, um, you know, car park integration. We do a lot of integration. That's a big thing these days, software and hardware integration. Yep. The element that I'm in, the TAM business, is specifically focused around running buildings for um, 25 years, with typically 25 years, with a general handback obligation at the end of the 25 years. So the condition we get the building in, which is generally new at the beginning, um, whoever it is, we give it back to, generally expects us to give it back to them in as new condition 25 years later, and obviously with updates along the way. Yep. So that um, sort of describes the line of business I'm in. I actually really like your acronym there as TAM, Total Asset Management. Yeah. I think that is uh, quite a, a powerful term and I think that's something that a lot of asset owners could benefit in in terms of focusing on it. Now, one of the key things, and I have raised it in previous podcasts, and, and having an expert in the asset management field, I think it's also important to, I guess, have you reiterate this because there's so much marketing out there right now um, mm-hmm. where software vendors are out there. You've got, let's just say, BIM specialists at this point in time uh, are going out and talking a lot about digital twins. <laughs> and, yeah, uh, okay. You know, everything seems to be a digital twin. We've moved on from BIM and everything's mm. a digital twin. Your systems are very smart and they are connected. Um, I guess mm. a question, I guess, for you, are they kind of CAFM systems or is it a digital twin that you're creating? You know, what, what, you know so I guess there's some clarification it, around that so that the asset owners aren't an, confused by this. It's an this, interesting uh, thing. So, yeah, CAFM... CAFM is not strictly a digital twin because um, it was developed back in the days when things were more planar, two-dimensional. Um, it's used for you know, space utilisation, planning, um, detecting or 
developing insights into high wear areas and building fabric high wear, equipment high wear, all that sort of thing, understanding how the asset health of a building is tracking. Yep. Um, but digital twin gives you, well, has the potential to give you that alignment to a better visualization tool, yep. but also ties in analytics, which CAFM systems are starting. So there's a bit of a blurred line there between CAFM and digital twin, but strictly speaking, CAFM isn't a digital twin. You have to do things to the CAFM to make it into a, what some people would define as a digital twin. Yeah, it's, um, it's frustrating yeah. for me because I think that uh, it, it just, you know, BIM at the start when it, was, when it came out was obviously confused um, asset owners and now we have a whole new level of of confusion to add to the system. Confusion, yeah. And so it's, it's interesting that even in BIM, like the way we utilise BIM in operations, um, we're very we're we're of the mindset because we're asset managers yeah. in the TAM business that um, to be careful not to put too much information in the single point of BIM, and that's where the digital twin alignment with CAFM can be very useful because it aligns with the skill sets of the operators um, because not everyone's very good at running Revit or running a BIM platform. Yes. And you know, so that's, that's probably um, with CAFM, you know, that's quite common in the industry, especially the CWMS component. So most people would have come across a CAFM in, in the facilities management world. But yeah, Digital Twin sort of a new thing that's popping around now with the with BIM as an extension, um, but uh, you know, a, a real digital twin will also have analytics feeding into it to provide you insights and greater I- ideas of what's going on inside your building in terms of utilisation and, and um, effect on the asset. Now, I guess that, that that's kind of covered off on that, but now I actually want to really delve into your true expertise and this is where I think it's really, really exciting because there's so much that people can learn from you in regards to the work that you've done so far. And I guess, you know, the, the next five years, I can, I'd be even more incredible to see what you come, what you guys develop. Mm-hmm. We've talked about this new acronym. Uh, well, it's new to me, um, but it's probably not new to you. But as you just mentioned, CMMS. Um, mm. Can you just give us an explanation on uh, what, what that acronym actually means? And then how yeah, so asset yeah. owners can actually benefit from possibly implementing this system as part of the management of their assets. Yeah, so a computer managed maintenance system is CWMS and it's typically a proponent or a spin from CAFM, which is the, 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 the whole holistic process of um, utilisation spatial planning asset management. Yep. The, the, the CWMS component, um, once again, quite a lot of building managers would have a CWMS of sorts in their building. They might not have a CAFM, but they sh- you know, should should have a CWMS. Um, and, that, and that's where FMs would um, be targeting their maintenance planning and um, tracking their maintenance planning, how they're you know, being compliant to maintenance requirements, so especially in things like fire maintenance, um, life safety management uh, of a building. Um, most people would put that into a CWMS system of sorts. We in, in the triple P world um, have to use it because it's what we um, cadence ourselves off for um, KPIs and you know uptime performance. So we we monitor you know the uptime of equipment through there. It's also where the help desk reports information into. So when you know our clientele reports something of, of damage or 
poor performance, it gets reporting via help desk and input into the CWMS system. And then that spins off all into tasks for people to do. And in the back end, then you can track those tasks and get insights into how a particular asset's tracking or how a particular area is tracking in terms of performance or comfort. You know, and, and in Honeywell world, we, 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 we're in the specialization of tying products together as software platforms as well as our own stuff together. Yep. And um, so CWMS has sort of also evolved and becomes part of that digital twin that people are talking about now. One of the things I can imagine with small small asset owners, and I mean in the region of you know maybe uh, say one to twenty five million dollars that you know they'd be managing mm. it, they'd be managing their asset uh, probably you know in Microsoft Excel or Word or yeah. something like yeah, that. Yeah. Is a CMMS scalable? You know, are there are there products available out there that would actually assist yeah. a small asset owner that wouldn't cost the earth? So you can. Buy scalable CWMSs, yep. and that's not a problem. Honeywell certainly in the business of um, aligning itself with partners who have that scalability. Yep. Um, one of the important things, though, is if you're looking to grow your business, sit down and understand how you're going to tag and create assets into the system, especially if you're looking to use it across a portfolio. And we we spend an awful lot of time doing that within TAM, trying to get the the portfolio arrangement going correctly yes. because otherwise you can't get insights between site to site. And, um, you know, then you're just managing sites siloed, which is you might as well just have a separate CWMS for each site and not bother talking to each other. But that's not that's not great efficiency. Um, so one of the things if it's a small company setting off on the journey of investing in a CWMS platform or going down the digital twin route is to really sit down and understand how they want to tag their assets or and what, what do they want as an outcome? Yep. It's probably the, the biggest thing. But I guess the key thing, I guess, that I've learned right now from you is that basically forgetting BIM, right? So we're forgetting BIM altogether. A CMMS system should be something asset owners should actually have in place today no matter whether they've got a, a digital model or not. Yeah. For me, having it in an Excel spreadsheet is better than not having it at all. Yes. And once you've got it in an Excel spreadsheet, then most companies can use that Excel spreadsheet to build it into the CWMS yep. as, a, as a company grows. Yeah. Now I want to jump on to the, the second kind of component that we've talked about, which I guess is uh, another area of your expertise, which is in within analytics for predictive maintenance. Mm. Now I, yeah. could, I could be throwing something out there and you could kind of pull me back because I'm a, a, you know, I'm a generalist when it comes to FM, not a specialist like yourself. But... I envisage or imagine that preventative maintenance obviously is probably one of the biggest opportunities for asset owners in terms of delivering savings during their operation phase. And But it also, from my perspective, I guess it, I can imagine it being a big thing and talking to the likes of Chris Linning from, um, who worked at the Sydney Opera House about reducing risks of facility downtime. Can you share we, with we, us? We, we flip it on its head and talk about uptime. Yeah, well, that's, it's actually the optimistic yeah, approach, yeah, isn't it, rather thing, than pessimistic? Yeah, yeah. But yeah and, then, and, and that's where analytics really, you know, has big dividends is in um, trying to understand a building's performance, in, especially in the controls element of, say, building controls, the H, heating, ventilation, air conditioning, yep. um, HVAC, your lighting system, anything that's electronically controlled can have analytics applied to it lift management systems, all sorts of things. And what it's 
set out to do, and, and, and my team's you know specialising in, in deploying analytics, especially across the TAM portfolio, is its greatest benefit is it sits there twenty four seven, running in the background, looking for cadence change, and those cadences, those changes in in performance are usually what alert are alerted or flagged. Um, Honeywell runs a platform known as OBS, which is transitioning into a, a, a bigger platform known as Forge. And that, that platform last year, we did 18 sites in Southern alone deploying it. Yep. And, you know, one of the, some sites are very, very successful. Um, they pick up lots of things that were erroneous on the site and they get corrected quickly. And other sites um, have been, you know, somewhat mediocre in their success. And that's probably because um, of user engagement with both staff and everyone in that change process, process of deploying analytics. Yep. Um, so only as good as you can get the information into it. But generally speaking, analytics does provide great benefits into providing uptime because it, it, it gives you that preemptive alert to potential failure of, say, a pump or a chiller or an air handling unit or a lighting control node or a lift that's just making noise. So we even have analytics, acoustic analytics now which is really quite cool. Wow. Um, and those sort of things pick up things just because of changes or nuances in change and they flag it before the actual thing goes into DEFCON 5 and fail, which is for a facility manager that then allows them to plan the change out of that potential failed equipment or just investigate it and stop it failing. Yes. And that's what the, the game's about is really trying to keep uptime and keep you know the end clientele, which is the staff in the building, happy. Um, because no one wants to come into a building where the air handling plant or the air conditioning has failed overnight and then they walk in on a 42-degree day and it's just not operational. So, yeah, analytics, yeah, it's certainly uh, been a big change within Honeywell, how we operate, and it's been a big change to the industry. Uh, I, I think it's still got a long way to go, but I don't think it's ever going to go away. No, well, it's only going to get more important, isn't it, as we move yeah, forward and yeah. trying to get greater efficiencies out of our buildings. Now, I guess a, an mm. interesting comment, and I guess this is just off the cuff in my mind, it's just in mm. response to that comment that you've made. It's uh, Preventative maintenance, I'm assuming, could also be a position whereby the cost of replacing a small component within a, within a large system because of uh, identifying through the analytics that there's something not working. Um, could then obviously prevent it from catastrophic failure. It's almost like, you know, when you have a car that's kind of starting to overheat, you don't keep driving, otherwise the head gasket goes. Is that something that yeah. you're finding where the, where the I guess, the the parts that might need to be changed out through your analytics findings are finding, you know, it's, if this small little change gets made now, it means you're, you're preventing a catastrophic failure, which actually Yeah, absolutely. More. So wear and tear, especially on um, chiller plants, uh, one of the things we get is um, short cycling as an issue yep. that doesn't necessarily alarm the building um, owner because it's not a fault status per se, so it doesn't flag an alarm. But certainly analytics allows you to optimise equipment. And when you optimise equipment to get it going in a more steady state arrangement, then you get longevity in asset in asset life. Um, and you see that in the dividend really is in your central plant. So if you can optimise your field devices like the um, air handling plant or and, and coming back to lighting, if you can optimise lighting those in, in, in how they control and making sure they're always controlling light properly, then 
by by nature you'll end up stretching your asset light naturally and you get better utilisation of that asset over time. That's why the TAM is invested in, in the analytics platform OBS so so heavily just because that pretty much affects our bottom line. Yeah, and from my perspective it almost kind of, uh, if I was a major asset owner it would almost be putting my hand up straight away, you know, knowing this information right now in terms of, well, let's let's look into this and see how we can actually gain you know, um, greater effectiveness in our building and not actually have, you know, obviously there's ex- additional energy costs that could occur because of systems that are malfunctioning, but then also longevity of the actual systems that are in place because of your actual monitoring. So I think that's that, that in itself demonstrates some major benefits. There are a lot of challenges as well. <laughs> and yeah. now we've talked about the benefits and I think from my perspective that ticks a lot of boxes and, and it'd be interesting, I guess, to see the scale of projects whereby it becomes efficient and effective, you know, so for example, you know, we talked about scaling different systems, but it'd be interesting and it's obviously not a conversation point for today, but you know how sometimes you have graphs where there's the point of where, you know, for example, up here in Queensland right now, the Queensland government have started with their digital policy and they've suggested Mm -hmm. assets over $50 million that are brand new that they'd like them to be delivered for BIM for FM. So there's a point, yeah. a line in the sand that they've set up right now. And, and uh, agencies within the Queensland government are uh, on a case-by-case basis adjusting that and bringing that value down so they might be delivering it mm-hmm. on a smaller project. But it'd be really interesting to do an asset analysis to identify where, what size asset all of this additional analytics and that becomes of value. You know, that'd, so be, that'd be interesting. We... We apply analytics in Southern to quite small sites, yep. and the reason why customers take that up, and this is outside of the TAM, like I was saying, yeah. my team do analytics not just in TAM but elsewhere for other external clientele, and they do that because they can't afford to have someone manning the site. Uh-huh. So it's interesting where analytics provides benefits to smaller sites. In some ways, um, it provides assurance, uh, assurance um, that the site's ticking over comfortably, and then when it's not or it's starting to drift away from where it should be, it flags it before it becomes an issue. And that's where I find analytics has been, you know, a great benefit to smaller customers, not just the bigger ones. And, you know, we see that also when they have a lot of satellite sites. So where now bigger customers have lots of satellite sites, they can apply analytics that then wraps up into a portfolio view and they can see how their energy is performing on site by site at a satellite basis. Um, so analytics is, yeah, it's, it's, I don't find analytics per se um, is, it has a scaling issue. Um, it can be applied to small things. It can be applied to just a critical piece of plant, um, you know, and the cost of that, you, you obviously have to weigh it in. But, yes. yeah, we have sites that are you know, only a 1,000 points being monitored and the customers still see value in that. That's great. And that shows you. And then we have other sites that are 23,000, you know, 30,000, 40,000 points being monitored at any one time. So that, that, that just shows you the size of the scale that the analytics platform can be applied across. But, um, you know, you were talking about BIM before, and that's that's a completely different challenge because when you get into BIM for operations, as, yes. that's one of the things my team are very big into, um, we're in a fortunate position that we have that scale because we have nine triple Ps under our belt just in Victoria alone. So we have that and what the what, reason the scale is important is um, 
you have to employ the skill sets to utilize that dim information. Yes. And, that, and that's something that, you know, I think asset owners are, are still trying to get their head around, that there's that digital twin thing that's going, the marketing around digital twin at the moment, um, it works for some customers really, really well. And other customers, the smaller customers, it, it, it really needs to be staged and, and segments of it need to be broken out of what's important to them. Yes. Um, yeah. But for us, BIM has been really important because we use it in the operating term to articulate change and also track change during that operating term. Because in you know one of our buildings is a, a large health facility, uh, Victorian Comprehensive Cancer Centre, and that that's a great example where it wasn't briefed to have BIM, but that building we use BIM in it for operations, and we use it pretty much every day um, for spatial planning, but also planning minor works and documenting the minor work changes, um, doing plans for modification work. In fact, we're doing two at the moment within the Peter Mac, and we're using the builder's handed over model. We then validate it using um, digital scanning, LIDAR scanning, um, issue that to consultants, and then they update it as required, and then that goes out as part of the tender pack, and we we loop back and then update the model so that the model's live for 25 years. We've made that decision to invest in BIM for the operating term. But that's like before you were talking about challenges. One of the Yeah, we got distracted. It's good. <laughs> yeah, but one of the, the, the challenges definitely, you know, you're talking about BIM and, and anything digital is um, scale and having the knowledge set. And that's one thing coming back to analytics if you engage an analytic company that can't do the service for you at the same time, then you, you end up duplicating contracts in some ways because you end up with a contractor doing your service that you then have an analytic company that says you need to do this, this, and this. So you can you, you have to understand that the, the asset manager or asset owner needs to start understanding um, their, their scale and how it works for them. Yeah. But, you know, there's, there's certainly... Um, challenges for people understanding how they engage with the newer technology. Now, I guess I'm getting back on track because I like getting diverted. <laughs> I go get distracted. Mm. Sometimes you run down and a new idea comes into your mind and then you chase that, chase your tail down it. But uh, yeah. obviously, you know, you've just discussed about the benefits and, and Honeywell's decision to obviously take a project that wasn't a BIM requirement by the client, and you said, as a as a as the person responsible for managing this asset for the next twenty five years, this is what we're going to do, and that that yeah. was a decision you made as a business. Now, interestingly enough, we, we we have challenges. Now, as a as an asset manager, you've made the decision that you're going to, um, you know, turn it into a, a BIM project when it wasn't mm. originally de- designated as a BIM for FM project, you know. Mm. Unfortunately, you guys are at the end of the food chain and uh, mm. the receiving end of the, the deliverables at the completion of construction, you know. And Yeah, so that, that, was, that was the interesting thing about the triple P's because triple P's by nature sort of have a soft landing component built into them because you're a team. They, engage, they engage with um, the FM's engaged at the beginning as part of the consortia. So Honeywell TAM were engaged during the bid for the C and the bid of other facilities that we manage. And 
we sit at the table with the builder and negotiate. Now, interestingly, like like it wasn't briefed to have BIM as an end deliverable or as an end operating platform by state. They asked the, you know, you've got to understand the state wrote the brief for the Victorian Comprehensive Cancer Centre, you know, 15 years ago. Which is a long time so, ago. You know, yeah, it was a long time ago. And then by the time all the funding mechanisms came for it and everything, so they had in their clause um, CAD and PDF with their contractual deliverables for O&M. But um, the builder um, wisely invested in BIM to mitigate against their builder's risk. And they put a lot of effort into clash coordination and everything so that they could meet their timelines of delivery. And I was attending a lot of meetings for serviceability because obviously, you know, we need to make sure everything is compliant from a serviceability point of view to make sure it's safe and serviceable. And through that process, I was sitting in a lot of BIM meetings, um, clash coordination meetings, and um, at the end of the whole process, it was like, well, what are we doing with this model? And the builder was like, well, it's not a deliverable. And we're going, well, we know it's not a deliverable, but how about we just negotiate it from you? We're not asking you to validate it, but we know you've built off it, so it must be somewhat pretty good. And the building I'm looking at physically in front of me looks pretty much like the building I'm looking at in the model, so I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with it. It might have 10% errors in it. But it was a really neat way because um, we were very successful in negotiating that with the building. The builder was very good, Grocon um, PCL. They were very good in um, providing that information across to us as it was, and we took that as it was. And then we've invested in it further since, and we've you know, invested in um, digital scanning technology, LiDAR scanning, to validate the model as we go so that we can then go, right, we've scanned an area to validate an area, and yes, it looks like the model, so we can believe in the model. But those have been, it, I think it's been a quite a neat success story because it, the risk of delivering BIM for operations um, wasn't overpriced. But we've used it because we have a, obligation to update documentation for 25 years and so it's been very useful for us so con- um, so contractually we, we, we yeah we update one model and then from that we spin off all our cut sheets for our contractual obligation on we still have a contractual obligation to deliver pdfs in yeah. flat two-dimensional drawing format which is pretty painful but um <laughs> that's our contractual obligation so we we run everything through the bim and then we spin off cut sheets to develop the to the um, contractual obligation documentation, which we then host in a, a common data environment um, known as Aconex, which most people in the building industry would know about, or well, certain those in the construction industry would know about. So we run um, Aconex for 25 years. We've decided also to run that for 25 years with our mechanism of transmitting information to um, to our clients. You've made it sound too simple. James, you've, so, made it, you've made it sound perfect. You haven't really covered any yeah, challenges at all. But, so, yeah, but so, this... so, so the challenge, so now I'm going to wind back to the challenge, and that is the rest of the world. So outside of the Triple P, you are absolutely right. So what normally happens is the FM's engaged at the end and they yeah. get what they get, and that's how it is. So one of the things, if you were asking me what do asset owners and property owners need to think about is documenting to the builder what they want as an end output to hand over to the FM. Now, to do that, they probably need to engage an FM provider who's sort of savvy and understands what they 
not just for their own self-interest, but would want to provide back to the asset owner at the end of their term. And, that, and that's a challenge in, say, commercial buildings because FNs might only have a five- or ten-year contract yes. with the asset owner. And so they're in the business of, you know, really just running the, the building to, say, a potential comprehensive contract for maintenance. And so their view on what they need is is more constricted. Um, but if they've got a longer-term view of asset replacement, and that's, and that's where we're very different in the triple P world because we have to understand asset risk of, you know, what's the longevity of that plan, then you, you, you want to understand more information and you want to document that, how you want it presented. And, and that doesn't necessarily all have to be in the BIM. You know, that's one big thing I'll say. Um, BIM is very, very useful, but don't get over carried away about putting everything into the into the BIM because you need specialists to extract it. Um, BIM leads and Revit operators to extract that data or operate and update that data. So, you know, it's perfectly accessible to work to Kobe in an Excel spreadsheet. And um, some people that's perfectly fine and it's, there's nothing wrong with that as long as the information is provided in a way that you can collate it into, a, uh, into one system later on. Yeah, I think that's the biggest challenge at the moment when clients are uh, slightly uninformed or or get informed mm. by a particular uh, person or a BIM specialist that has a certain bent about saying you know we well, should use proprietary files or you should or you should name it a particular way or this is all you need and you know I, I, I look at things and some of the biggest challenges I've seen recently apart from the fact that clients are relying upon consultants to provide generic specifications on what a contract has to deliver which yeah. results in never any any naming standards at all it's all kind of ad hoc and it's a bit of a mess you know you see other challenges where the information that's delivered is also all over the place and the models that are delivered aren't delivered in, a, in an appropriate manner because they're focused it's an amazing thing that in this world we haven't come up like I was thinking about it the other day. A librarian has the Dewey Decimal System. Yep. They can walk into a library and pull a book off a shelf because they know the Dewey Decimal System. No matter in the world yeah, where in, you are, yeah. Yeah, no matter where in the world where you are. It's a unified system. Yet in the world of built environment, country to country or, you know, geographic poles, say, Europe has their way, America definitely has their way, and Australia is sort of a bit of hybrid in between. We haven't come to a consensus on document numbering or document naming strategies even. Um, even even things like asset tagging room identification, yeah. there's no set format for that. There's a very good document by the US military for their medical hospital that um, Honeywell's relied on for their PAM assets in you know numbering, numbering rooms and how you room number and allow for growth in the building. Those sort of things are really quite important yet really more than often overlooked. So, you know, from building to building, you get different naming strategies just on your documents, your your drawings, the way a room's labelled, even lifts, how many times you've got into a lift where ground is one, sometimes ground is um, G, sometimes it's one, sometimes it's even B1 ground, you know, sort of there's, there's really weird ways of... Um, how the built environment has been, has, has been brought together. And it would be fantastic if someone would come up with a, a, a unified strategy 
for document management and how everyone falls into it. I made the suggestion a couple of weeks ago that I think we should just adopt the UK's document naming strategy. That, that system in the UK, my experience with the UK document numbering and management system was really good. Um, and I've had two projects here in Australia that have utilised it. And interestingly, they're the easiest ones to find documents within. I, I was a big fan of that because I went from project to project in the UK. And each time um, I was fortunate enough, to each of those projects had adopted that system. So as a project manager, I didn't have to relearn a document management system. That, that was a, it, it seems simple when you think about it, but... In Australia, you go from project to project, relearning pretty much always um, the document management process for a for a project through, and then and then that transitions into operation, and that's the that's the thing. If you don't capture it at the beginning, um, it's going to be there for operations to live with for twenty, fifty, hundred years. That's been a debate that I've kind of put forward on the table in a couple of conversations I've had in the last couple of weeks about what I think that should happen now. Another interesting point that you talked about, and this is another key kind of critical, I think, failure within our system, and I think it's really good to see that over in um, the UK, they've come up with a soft landings policy, which you did talk about uh, a little while ago about. You know, how important do you think it is for asset owners to have their facility manager at the table during the planning so in other words you know before even consultants are engaged to actually document what they actually need but then also you know the interesting point you made about being part of the process during the design or the you know the coordination phase where you're sitting there at the table and communicating and saying you know what i've got to maintain this asset you know you got to you got to think about you know how serviceability or you know, this massive uh, washing machine or dryer that you guys are placing in there, have you got an opening big enough to get it out? Yeah. So potentially that's maybe why they don't bring facility managers in <laughs> at the early stage because there's a potential to add costs. So that's, you know, that's just being very pragmatic. Well, adding, adding, adding capital costs but probably yeah. you know, saving operational yeah. costs. Yeah, so that's the balance, and so um, and that and that's the decision for the asset owner to understand. You know, how long are they in it for? Are they are they an asset owner just for the purpose of, of developing the property and then they're going to flip it? Yeah. Or are they a long term asset owner who's you know in the journey of developing it with a builder and then operating it for fifty years? You know, like your your AMPs and the big guys. You know? Yes. And and then that's, that's a very that that changes the dynamic of when and should you engage. But um, certainly just from a safety and design, safety and operations point of view, having a facility guy who really knows how things are maintained is a big benefit um, because no one wants an accident on site and um, accidents cost money, you know, being very pragmatic. So if you can design out risk in that sense um, and it will also bring efficiencies in operation because if you can maintain something easily, then you can get it back online quicker. So therefore the client's um, customers will be happier. So there's all sorts of benefits of having uh, a good facility operator, facility manager engaged early. And it doesn't mean need to be at the bid stage, but certainly having them there to review designs would be a great benefit. Um, having someone who understands what true soft landings are is probably more difficult in Australia because not 
everyone's um, versed in what soft landings are really about. But soft landings as, as an approach um, definitely have big dividends to an asset owner if they're in it for the long term. Because if you get it right at the beginning, then the asset health of your building will be set up at the beginning rather than waiting for 10 years and then starting to think about it. If you have someone that's really switched on as a facility operator, having them engaged early in, in design through to you know commercial commercial acceptance, commercial contract completion of a building, um, yeah, it, it'll pay dividends in that maintainability of the building. And that's the same in retrofits as well. I mean, you see it a lot where retrofits come into a into a shell and. And then later on, a facility guy comes in and says, oh, I can't maintain that because it's got a solid bulkhead. And then you've got to cut holes in the ceiling and all sorts of things like that. So, so yeah, that's, you do that all the time. <laughs> oh, it's, it's just called um, people not being aware of all of the constraints and, you know, mm. liaising with the right people at the right time to get the right information to enable it to, mm. to a, a asset to run through its full life. Let's paint a perfect picture. Now, yeah. in, in, and, and, you know... <laughs> Let's forget about Utopia. <laughs> well, yeah, the Utopia is a place I like to live in. But the, the key thing, yeah. I guess, from my perspective is apart from uh, collaborative contracts, uh, you know, integrated project delivery, uh, integrated project insurance projects, looking at challenges where you have pr- traditional procurement. So let's look at it th- at that end because obviously when mm-hmm. you've got the collaborative contracts, everyone's at the table at the start, as you said, which is the area that you specialize in. But in an ideal situation for uh, assets, asset owners, I guess, that are looking um, to produce or, you know, deliver it or procure a brand new building, you know, what sort of process do you think that that uh, these asset owners should follow to, I guess, to try and end up with information that's actually usable uh, by your team or teams like your team? Uh, when it's once it's handed over to be managed, Utopia, and and we are seeing this to say, um, so it's not Utopia; it's starting to happen. Is defining what is an asset and an early stage that needs to be tracked. Yep, it's a big positive. Uh, defining so defining operational elements at the beginning. If you can define it at the beginning, it makes everyone's journey much happier because the builder then goes, "Okay, I know what I need to do," and he knows at the beginning. And if you can define assets to a room or a numbering strategy for the building, um, that works even better because then you can understand the room. You know, when you read the tree or you read a, a tag, by reading it, you get to understand exactly where it is in the building without even bringing up a computer device. Which is That's a fantastic yeah. place to be. And it's possible. And we've, we've done it at VCCC and I'm pretty happy about that. So. It shows you if you invest at the beginning, you, you can end up with a good result at the end where people get used to the way things are tagged, so it combines it. So when a computer or a system such as the analytic platform flags, hey, there's a potential problem with this, the guy doesn't even have to open up his tablet to look at it. He just he sees it on his SMS and he knows where it is in the building because you've appropriately zoned it and labelled the building. So that's one big positive. And then the documentation, one of the things I think of great benefit is if the asset owner can agree on a common data environment platform at the beginning that they want to transition into operation. 
and then just pay for it because then all the information that was garnered and gathered during the construction transitions neatly to the facility manager in operation. And that's very different to an operation maintenance manual that's required for the benchmarking of commercial acceptance. Yep. It's very different. And that's one of the big, big positives we've had where the builder and project co, you know, plenary at BCCC, we were very successful in negotiating the information that was developed during construction, uh, which was hosted in a platform called Aconnect, uh, which is now Oracle. That platform was transitioned to us in the operating term. And we, you know, with plenary pay for that, you know, platform for 25 years, but it's been fantastic because we can go back in time through Aconex and look at what happened in the project to understand why things are the way they are. And most of that information gets lost if you just put it into an O&M system or it stays static and it's not, and, and that's the, the difference about if you transition the CDE, common data environment, from the build program into the operational program, then you get, there's great dividends in that. That, um, that to me sounds like a, a, a probably the biggest takeaway because you yeah. know, in the end what happens is is that all of the correspondence that occurs during the design phase, all the correspondence instructions and variations and that that occur during the construction phase, they're all lost and then you get a set of as construction as constructed outcomes without any context. And I think that uh, for me, apart from understanding all the other uh, systems and that, that actually makes a lot of sense from an asset owner's perspective to be able to. It's not about. Um, it's about transparency, I guess per se. It's it's about having that transparency of understanding why decisions were made a particular way, and it means that mm. you know if you're responsible for looking after the asset um, for the long term, you know it means that you know for example, you might be able to identify even easier and quicker whether or not the uh, cladding material on the building, for example, is. Uh, is, is combustible because you'd be able to go and quickly identify uh, through the Absolutely. system what was actually installed. And you don't even and you can, BIM for that. You can even see correspondence between, you know, provided you've been granted those the access to those correspondences and that's another thing that people have to work through actually. But, um, what, what it allows you to do is understand why a certain decision was made yes. on, on, say, cladding. And there might be a very valid reason. So then, you know, everyone, the pressure's off because you go, okay, I understand that reason. That was a reason, a decision made back then and regulations and legislation were different back then. So now I understand it. So, and, and, and if you don't have access to that information, then what normally has to happen is you have to bring in lots of consultants and specialists who then spend quite a lot of time trying to understand something that they might not be able to get to the bottom of. And then, you know, decisions are made because they don't understand the history. Yes, um, and requests yeah. for so information to basically delve through mm. uh, information from 20 years ago that mm. that might be very hard to find because the system isn't supported. And that's why I say setting up the, the naming and document structure is so important. So if you project what I've just talked about forward 100 years, 200 years, like the guys at Sydney Opera House, yeah, um, that level of, you know, documents are effectively flat files in a CDE. So at the moment, I think we're traveling around 76,000 documents for that uh, C. Yep. And even though it's in a nice structure, it's still when you do super searches and wildcard 
if you don't know what you're looking for to to the structure, it can be really daunting. You might flag up five thousand possible kits. Yeah. So that's why I say structuring how you label into at the beginning is so important because it has has a long term effect in how you operate at the end. One of the other things is structuring so that um, you know we are moving towards digital twins. So and there's a, and the, the big benefit of a digital twin, a, a good digital twin, is it provides you that visualization tool that ties all that flat file data, documents, everything together, and makes it easier to navigate to. And that's one of the we've we've got a site in Melbourne where the client has asked for a true visualization single pane of glass that extracts the BIM information by IFC. Mm-hmm. Um, so we don't get paid to do graphics anymore as an operating platform. It just extracts it out of the BIM. And then all the asset information, uh, the O&M information, commissioning, uh, it's, it's very, very uh, funky and pretty cool, is all sitting in this single platform. And But to do that, they needed to develop the mechanism of how everything talks together. So there's been an awful lot of work, but ultimately for the the FM guy who comes along, he'll find it you know, scary at first, but then he'll get to love it because everything's just sitting there in one platform, which uh, means he doesn't need to have lots and lots of platforms to go to. So that's probably where the next big thing's going, and that's why people are starting to talk to Digit Twin because it's now possible. Yes. Um, ten, ten years ago it probably wasn't, but now it's definitely possible, and you know, Honeywell's big into that. They're moving very much well you know, very much into the software support and software development um, as well as their hardware. They've still got their traditional hardware, but Honeywell certainly in a big way is going down that software route for supporting the built environment. And yeah. that's, you know, and we find when customers come talk to us about digital twin, one of the challenges is, you know, what is the condition of the asset information? <laughs> if you can sort it out at the beginning, it makes it very, very easy, you know, it's, it's, everything's possible, but if you if you have a process and you define things at the beginning um, in new builds, then everything becomes easier at the end. It's always that that lovely saying of begin with the end in mind, and by taking that approach, yeah, it, it might it, it actually makes it econom- really more good, economical. Yeah, and and that's you know if you understand the outcomes you want to achieve at the end of the journey, and and I don't mean just at the end of the build, but I say in twenty five oh, thirty years time, then you can really set yourself up in good stead and um, and transitions become easier. We've touched a lot on new facilities and how to capture the best practice for that and I you know some of the challenges that are currently existing. Let's open another can of worms and finish this one off today but you yeah. know there's a lot of existing built assets out there. In 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 an existing world like um you know Melbourne City Council have been fantastic down here in Melbourne capturing information with uh, digital capture technology like LiDAR scanners. And in our own team, we've invested in a LiDAR scanner, a very good one, and that's been fantastic and pretty much a game changer. You know, there's there's cheaper units to get you going and then there's the more expensive units that save on the post-production. And for those who don't know what LiDAR is, it's a way of capturing information, uh, very accurate information that allows you to create a, a BIM if you don't have a BIM to start with. That's one of the things we've used to great success in, in TAM Southern. So we go into areas where traditionally some of our assets are, you know, 15, 20 years old yep. and they had traditional hand-drawn drawings. 
So we're not even talking CAD file. We've got PDF scans of stuff that was done on a drawing board, uh, you know, the old <laughs> blueprint days. Yep, and, uh, indeed. You know, some areas of the building, uh, you know, you can rely on those drawings. In other areas of the building, we've got – so now we've got this area where we've got CAD and then, then we've got some PDFs of blueprints and now we're transitioning all of that information and uh, we've, we've found Revisto. It's another product not owned by Honeywell, but it's been a fantastic product and we use that in TAM. We're transitioning stuff into the Revisto platform, so 2D files laid into a 3D world. Yep. So we use a scanner to capture the world in 3D and then we build up on that and then we create models as required. So that's one way people can digitise their assets. So that's, I think, for pre-existing asset owners, I think that's where the market will um, take them, that, that they can get into this digital world pretty easily now if they have the right tools and the right people or if they don't have, they can always come and talk to me. Um, or there's other people they can talk to as well. And it's, it's going to become more accessible as, as, as the technology yeah, increases. Right. It's yeah. going to become and more cost-effective. Like we know of one product that's coming out that's taking point cloud scanning to a level that just allows you to walk along with this handheld device. <laughs> Whereas at the moment, a lot of them are tripod-based. So you yep. set them up and they scan. It takes five, seven minutes to scan an area. But these are big scans, like they'll do a scan of 30 metre at spherical radius. Mate, we've covered off on so many exciting things today and I know we'd be able to talk for hours, but for the yeah. listeners that, that possibly might be listening to this while they're uh, in transit, we obviously don't want to have to take over too many times, too many trips that they're going to make to actually listen to this whole thing and I'm sure we can have more chats next year. But, mate, thanks very much for your time, James. Now, no problem. I have one final question and this is one that I ask yeah. everyone that I have on, on my show. What does BIM right. mean to you? Uh <laughs> Maybe it's Tam. It's <laughs> actually a hard, a harder question. So BIM, the ultimate goal for BIM is for the asset owner and operator, um, but that's harder. It's it's harder to do than said, and and that and that's hopefully I've touched on that is because of scalability at the moment. So for us in Tam, it makes sense because of our scale and our longevity in in our engagement for those twenty five year type contracts. Yep. But for people who are engaged for five years on a contract, BIM still has great value if they can get it right. One of the things I, I am very cognizant of, though, is don't over-specify the BIM requirement for operation yeah. because it adds burden, and that burden ultimately adds cost. So that's why I'm, I keep talking about understand what you want as an outcome, and then you can understand what you need to specify into your BIM requirement. But for B... BIM ultimately will be the platform that we, and we've already done it and we're going to see more of it, is um, our graphical interface for getting to information and tying information together to the, to the platform, which is BIM will extract data out of, but you know, having that bi-directional conversation with the BIM and all the other platforms that help make a facility operate and give insight into how a facility operates will be where the BIM is important in the future. No, it's a very uh, good answer and it's good to hear an answer from someone that actually deals with it at the back end and deals with it for more time than any other stakeholder throughout the delivery of an asset. But James, thanks very much, mate, for your time. And for more yeah, information on James and this topic discussed today, please head to our website for further reading. 
Now, I look forward to sharing our, our final uh, podcast for this series in a fortnight's time. But until then, good luck with your digital transition. For more information, or if you'd like to continue the discussion in the comments section, head over to our website, thedigitaltransition.com. Remember to subscribe so you don't miss out on our future podcasts. Digital transition.